0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin on this Labor Day as the summer of strikes is about to go into the fall, with the UAW contract expiring on September the 14th, leading to a possible walkout that would shut down the big three automakers over issues involving the switch to electric vehicles. Joining us to assess the state of working America and the energized union movements from Hollywood to Detroit is Lane Windham, Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and the Co-Director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of the New Economic Divide. Then, while corporate America beats down workers and fights unions, the wage disparity between CEOs and workers on the shop floor grows, with executives able to write their own multi-million dollar compensations as they buy back stock to boost their earnings at the expense of R&D and productive investments for long-term growth. Joining us is Sarah Anderson, who directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Sarah is the lead author of over 20 annual Executive Excess Reports and is the co-editor of Inequality.org. Her books include Field Guide to the Global Economy and Alternatives to Economic Globalization. And she just released the 2023 Executive Excess Report, available at the Institute for Policy Studies. Then finally we'll speak with Lee Harris, a staff writer at the American Prospect and the co-founder of New York Focus, an investigative news site on New York politics. We'll discuss her recent articles at the American Prospect, Phoenix Cuts Electrician Pay and Sends in Taiwanese Workers, and Biden Administration to Restore Labor Rule Gutted in the 1980s. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now on this Labor Day is Lane Windham, the Associate Director of the Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and the Co-Director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. And she's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lane Windham.
1: It's great to be here with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the Treasury Department, Under Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just released the first of its kind report that finds that unions uh, are an important, if not the important way of reversing stagnant wages and economic inequality, and that unions benefit the middle class in as much as they raise their members' wages by 10 to 15%, but they also help to improve the wages and benefits of non-union workers. And that affects the the well-being of the entire community. And that, of course, is a way to address the inequality and racial and gender wage gaps that uh, afflict this country. So this seems to be a moment where you have a government that supports unions uh, in 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 a fulsome way, which is highly unusual. Do you think it's translating to the country at large that there's a kind of learning curve here about the benefit of unions?
1: Great question. So, yes, the new Treasury Department study definitely found that unions uh, have an advantage not only for union members but also for uh, workers at large because of the spillover effect when unions raise wages. Uh, It also found that the report uh, found that uh, unions closed Uh, race and gender wage gaps, Uh, the union advantage is even higher for Hispanic workers, 35% and for African American workers, 20%. Um, So we are in the midst, I think, of, you know, hot labor summer where there's lots of strikes, there's lots of organizing, there's lots of activism. Uh, the certainly the Biden administration's support for unions and for labor is having an effect. People feel that the government uh, is helping to put some wind at their back. But I think it's more than that. I think it's also a reaction to how workers were treated during the pandemic uh, and people deciding that they just aren't going to Take poor treatment and, and low wages anymore. And so we've seen so much action, right? The Hollywood writers and actors, the Starbucks workers, uh, and of course, uh, the 150,000 auto workers who just authorized a strike at the big three automakers.
0: And their contract expires, the UAW contract expires on September the 14th. So that's the hot summer going into the fall, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, one thing that we're seeing is that people's understanding of unions, I think, has been shifting. Labor unions are far more popular than they've been in, you know, 50 years. New Gallup polling this month shows that there's a 67 percent favorability rate for unions. It's the highest it's been since 1967. And it's even higher uh, among young workers. Um, And so what that means for those auto workers who are out on strike, for the actors and writers who are on strike, and also for workers organizing is that they have enormous public support behind them. That's different than in the the 1970s or 1980s, when there was a lot of backlash to teacher strikes, for instance.
0: Well, I'm a member of both this writers guild and the screen actors guild and i've been picketing at what used to be the fox studios uh, but now disney owns it and i have to tell you lane that you walk up and down and It's weather's been pretty hot out here in la and holding up your signs uh, many of them are quite creative because writers <laughs> tend to have the have uh, some skills in that department yeah. but what what's particularly striking though is it's a busy street uh, pico boulevard and almost every car that drives by toots their horn in in support of the picketers. So you you get the, the distinct impression that the public is completely behind the union.
1: Yes, uh, you know I uh, have been watching some of that on social media happening in in California, and it does feel like there's just a tidal wave of support for for the actors, for the writers. And that's important. Um, I also think it's going to uh, impact the labor movement for a long time because young people are seeing, you know, the actors that they know, people who work on the the entertainment shows that they know, seeing them on strike. That's going to have an an impact well into the the future as this generation matures.
0: So. What's your sense then of what the government can do or the Biden administration can do to sort of take this to the next level? Because you still have the percentage of the of the workforce, I think it's still at an all-time low, something around 10% yeah. uh, that's yeah. unionized. Uh, so you've got the sympathy, you've got the fact that I- you've got an economy now with very low unemployment, so for the first time in the longest time, workers have a little more flexibility in terms of deciding what jobs they want to take and a lot of corporations and companies are having a hard time recruiting people, particularly for you know lousy jobs so it's a it's a pretty good environment. but how do you take it to the next step and for example, the pro act would be an incredibly important piece of legislation if it were passed to make union organizing a lot easier because there's so many impediments that have been set up over the decades. So how do you see this environment translating into some more successes? And given, of course, that uh, we're in an election year in 2024 and Biden's managed to accomplish quite a bit with a very, very slim majority.
1: You know, these are great questions, and you're right. It is a bit of a con- quandary, right? The percentage of unionized workers is still incredibly low at 10%. That's basically a century-level uh, low, despite the fact that we have such a strong labor market, there's been so much labor activity, and the fact that nearly half of workers say that they would form a union tomorrow is given the chance. So why is the percentage so low? Uh, So basically, the problem is that uh, the doorway through which workers can enter unions in the U.S. remains far too narrow for unions to effectively grow. In part, uh, that's labor law, uh, which is very weak. Employers bend and break the labor law and um, basically keep workers from effectively forming unions. Uh, and the law is too weak to stop them. There are no fines. The National Labor Relations Board did just issue an important new decision called the CMEX decision, which would basically, uh, if the company breaks the law during an election period, the government could uh, issue what's called a bargaining order, which would make the company bargain. So for instance, that perhaps could force someone like Starbucks to bargain, um, which uh, basically has broken the law numerous times, uh, but continues to seem to get away with it. Um, Ultimately, however, I think that um, that the labor movement uh, and government uh, may have to rethink uh, union membership itself right now. In order to be a union member, you have to have a union contract, Unions could flip the script on that and could throw their doors wide open and have open-door membership. They could still bring workers in under contract, but they could also welcome the hordes of workers who want to be part of labor but have not yet been able to get a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, And so that is one option that unions could use to boost union membership.
0: But one of the tricks that corporate America plays, from what I understand, is if you do manage to get unionized and have, you know, a long and often painful strike and you finally have a victory where the company agrees to write a contract. Then what happens is that the company and its lawyers just absolutely delay, 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 delay the implementation of the contract for years. And how do you get around that?
1: Well, it, it's a problem, right? Consider the more than 8,500 Starbucks workers who have voted to join a union. Not a single one of them has a union contract yet, and not a single one will actually show up in government statistics as a union member, right? And so Starbucks has effectively blocked those workers from having a union contract and effectively from being union members. And so ultimately, you uh, we, we have to have stronger laws, which force workers, force, I'm sorry, force employers to bargain effectively. And the government can, you know, basically force the companies to honor the contracts, honor the collective bargaining agreements. So to do that, we're going to need Certainly, the kinds of labor law fixes that we are seeing the Biden National Labor Relations Board push through, we've seen some already. We can expect some more decisions over the next coming weeks. But even those decisions, I think, though they will strengthen labor law in a way that they may strengthen it past where it's been in 40 years, um, it still is not enough to really force employers to... Uh, negotiate with workers, and uh, implement the contract. So again, I think one of the solutions is that unions can uh, consider opening up membership beyond those people who are represented by a collective bargaining agreement.
0: It seems as if whatever rules exist now, people like the CEO of Starbucks, who reluctantly testified to, to the Congress, and clearly was evasive. I I won't call him a liar, (laughs) but he was evasive. So, you know, how do they get away with it? Is that lack of enforcement? Because one of the things about the National Labor Relations Board is that the Republicans are blocking uh, getting new members on. They're holding up Biden's nominees to weaken the NRLB. I wish the Democrats could point out to the public, you know, who's really on their side when it comes to working Americans.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, yes, exactly. The National Labor Relations Board, uh, one of the members, uh, her, her term is recently up. She has not yet been reconfirmed by the Senate. In addition, even whatever decisions the National Labor Relations Board passes under Biden, should there be a Republican administration, They can basically roll all of that back. And so ultimately, we are going to need stronger laws. Congress has to pass stronger laws. Uh, And we need laws that really go beyond the National Labor Relations Act that was passed in 1935 at a time during and uh, we had, you know, a certain kind of industrial economy we need labor law that goes beyond that and includes the kinds of workers that we see more in our economy today, like the gig workers, contract workers, freelance workers, temp workers, everybody needs to be able to have access to a union. And so ultimately we, we need a really strong um, rethinking of labor law uh, at, and that has to come ultimately through through Congress.
0: And Labor doesn't have any friends on the Supreme Court's majority, clearly.
1: Working people don't have friends. (laughs) That's absolutely right. That is, Our Supreme Court is not a friend of working people. So
0: so this means that, in effect, working Americans are going to have to step up in the next elections and provide the Democrats with a bigger majority in the House and Senate, right? to get past the filibuster threshold and to implement the PRO Act because the PRO Act would be the key to unionising working America. I
1: I think the PRO Act would go a long way towards opening up workers' ability to effectively form unions. Even the PRO Act, though, I don't think does quite the level of change that we, we need to see. I think we need the PRO Act Plus, I think we need to proact. Plus, legislation that really will dig into uh, today's economy and the, the kinds of workplaces that that Americans are working in. So yes, we need to see electoral reforms. But remember, electoral reforms are not the only the only um, front, right? Uh, elected leaders act because workers. Uh, create pressure on the in the streets, and so the kinds of strikes we're seeing, the kinds of activity, have to continue as well. Uh, I think that we need both the ballot box and the streets.
0: So, just in the last couple of minutes, then the Biden administration did offer new overtime pay rules, which I think are going to be very beneficial to a lot of people. While most hourly workers are entitled to overtime pay, non-hourly workers in executive administration and professional roles, including some supervisors, are exempt unless they make less than $35,568 a year. And the new rules are going to change that. Again, that should be very popular, right?
1: Oh, I think so, yes. I mean, what that means is that people, they've raised the threshold, so now it's in the $50,000 range that it's... If- uh, you make below that fifty thousand, uh, then, and um, even if you're classified as a supervisor, that you would be eligible for overtime pay, and that is going to prevent many employers from misclassifying people as supervisors uh, to keep them, you know, off the overtime rolls. And we're going to see a real wage bump for many workers. So hopefully, yes, that will translate into support for uh, the Biden administration who has been pushing this rule.
0: Well, Lane Wyndham, I thank you so much for joining us on this Labor Day.
1: Terrific. Thanks, Ian. I hope you have a great Labor Day weekend.
0: You too. And again, I've been speaking with Lane Wyndham, who's Associate Director at Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labour and the Working Poor. And she's the co-director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labour Leadership, and is the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organising in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. We're going to take a pre station break. We're back looking into how, while corporate America beats down workers and fights unions, the wage disparity between CEOs and workers on the shop floor grows. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now on this Labor Day is Sarah Anderson, who directs the Global Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Sarah is the lead author of over 20 annual Executive Excess Reports and is the co-editor of inequality.org. Her books include Field Guide to the Global Economy and Alternatives to Economic Globalization. And she just released the 2023 Executive Excess Report available at the Institute for Policy Studies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Anderson.
2: Thanks for having me in.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Sarah. And this is your 29th annual e- Executive Excess Report. You look in depth at uh, 100 of the S&P 500 corporations with the lowest medium worker pay levels, which you call the low-wage 100. And in terms of the CEO-worker pay gap at the low-wage 100, the average is 603 to 1 in 2022, and the winner of the uh, prize for for the the greatest income disparity is a CEO of Live Nation Entertainment, where he has the widest gap pay gap, Michael Rapino He hauled in one hundred and thirty nine million, which is five thousand four hundred and fourteen times as much as his firm's twenty five thousand dollars six hundred and seventy three median pay. So let's start with that example. Why do these CEOs think they deserve to be so much higher paid than their workers? What is their rationale?
2: Well, they live in a bubble and they hear from others that uh, they're worth hundreds, if not thousands of times more than their workers because there's just only a handful of human beings um, on the planet who can handle uh, these top jobs. And I think uh, any uh, normal person knows that that is absolutely absurd. And I think one thing that the pandemic did, which was it opened people's eyes even more to how essential so many low wage workers are to the running of our economy and that every employee contributes value to their company, not just the guy in the corner office.
0: But what is the secret sauce that these uh, CEOs have? Because you can, in corporate America, you can go from a company, as a CEO of a company that builds bicycles, then to one that cans pineapple and then move on to another one that makes nuclear submarines, and somehow your skills are transferable.
2: Well, I don't think there's any secret sauce. I think there's a, a lot of scamming going on here. And one thing that we looked at in the report is how much money these companies have been spending on stock buybacks, which is really just a scam to inflate CEO pay. So stock buybacks are when a company repurchases their own stock from the open market, and when they do that, it artificially inflates the value of their stock, and that, in turn, inflates the value of CEO stock-based pay. So just to be clear, CEOs get... Massive personal windfalls from these stock buybacks that have absolutely nothing to do with their performance. They could sit around and watch cat videos all day and still make you know, huge rewards through this financial maneuver that has nothing to do with how they're performing on the job. And it's become more and more common. Um, big corporations have been doing record spending on stock buybacks in the past couple of years. And we, like you said, zeroed in on these low-wage companies and found that they have spent more than $341 billion on stock buybacks since 2020. And it's just it's a way that they siphon resources away from uh, worker wages, and other productive investments to artificially inflate their CEO's uh, stock-based
0: pay. And again, the prize goes to Lowe's, who uh, spent $14.1 billion on buybacks, enough to give every one of its 301,000 U.S. employees a $46,923 bonus. And in 2022, Lowe's CEO Marvin Ellison was compensated uh, with seventeen point five million dollars, while the m- retailer's median workers' pay is a mere twenty nine thousand five hundred eighty four. Pretty shameless, yeah. and and Home Depot, another yeah. one in the same business, is the same, and then Walmart, of course, its CEO Doug McMillan took in twenty five. 25- Point three million in 2022, while half of his employees earned less than twenty seven thousand one hundred and thirty six dollars. So, this is the racket, right
2: yeah boy i really had to triple check my math on on these figures because when i first calculated that lowe's could have given every one of their employees like forty seven thousand dollar bonus with the money that they spent on buybacks just last year i thought i've got it i must have calculated that wrong but it, it it's the truth and here are these uh companies and ceos saying that they oh they couldn't possibly raise uh wages they just don't have the resources to do it um it just you know, shows the lie behind uh, those arguments. And I I had the um, opportunity to speak with a, a Lowe's worker who was one of the lead organizers um, trying to form a union at a Lowe's in New Orleans. And he talked about how just chronically understaffed that company is where he was hired to do one job, but he wound up doing like everything because customers would have questions and you know, he would wind up having to saw wood and cut keys and like do everything. And that kind of understaffing is really hard on workers. It's not good for customers, but it just shows where the priorities are in these companies. That they're taking all this money to blow on buybacks when their, their uh, employees are having to really um, hustle in ways that aren't even really good for the business.
0: And in 2021 and 2022, the S&P 500 Corporation spent record sums on stock buybacks. And every dollar spent on stock buybacks is a dollar not spent on workers' wages, research and development, and other productive investments that would be better for all in the long run. So is there anybody that's in corporate America that recognizes this reality, that this is actually not good for the company's long-term benefit?
2: Well, what was shocking was we zeroed in on these 100 low-wage companies, and uh, almost all of them were doing stock buybacks. So it's ubiquitous in corporate America. And I would say the, the good thing about just you know, how crazy this has gotten is it has provoked uh, a bit of a response from policymakers. So we have seen some steps forward. Uh, we now have a new tax on stock buybacks. It's a, it's a pretty small tax. It's a 1% sta- uh, excise tax on buybacks. That was in the Inflation Reduction Act that passed in 2022. And uh, the Biden administration is also uh, starting to take some uh, small steps to Um, use the the power of the public purse, uh, the power that they have over federal contractors to discourage these stock buybacks. So with new uh, subsidies that have passed uh, to encourage domestic production of semiconductors, they're saying that companies will have a really hard time getting those subsidies if they don't agree to kick the buyback habit. And so I think those are a couple of important precedents that we should really build on. I don't think any companies getting taxpayer money should be allowed to do this CEO pay inflating scam, otherwise known as stock buybacks. And um, we have a, a lot of power, A 25 percent of U.S. private sector workers work for companies that get some money from the federal government, and we should be doing a lot more to use the leverage of that those taxpayer dollars to push companies to have less obscene pay practices. We could, you know, use it to push them to narrow their gaps between CEO and worker pay, and to and um, their use of stock buybacks.
0: And you mentioned that the 1% t- tax in the IRA, I think the, Biden wants to raise that to 4%. Right. And of course, the Republicans do not support that. But on the other hand, you would think the public would be behind it, because I think it's pretty glaringly unfair. And these, these people, these CEOs, they literally get to write their own ticket. One of the challenges that Biden has and that the public has is that the big pharma, who have also been indulged in massive stock buybacks at the same time getting massive government subsidies to develop the very drugs that they then gouge the public over, they're trying to resist the IRA's provision to do bulk buying to reduce the the cost of prescription drugs, and they're, they're taking it all to court. So, again... Biden and, and the Democrats should be on the offensive, shouldn't they? They have the public on their side, surely.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I've been working on CEO pay issues for a long time. One reason I like working on this issue is because I can find common ground with just about anybody, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, when it comes to, you know, outrage over overpaid CEOs who, you know, rigged the rules in their favor And also, of course, uh, bringing pharmaceutical prices down is wildly popular. So again, these companies are going to say, you know, oh, my God, if you do this, uh, we won't have enough money to put into R&D and, you know, innovation and creating new drugs. Well, they've got a lot of money sloshing around that's just going to their top executives and their wealthy shareholders. And I think we just always have to to hit back on those arguments and, and really demand that they operate um, in the interest of the public.
0: And what are some of the other measures under that are coming out of the House and the Senate, we mentioned uh, the IRA and making some small steps. What about the, the Patriotic Corporations Act? What's the status yeah. on
2: that? Yeah, well, Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, she's a House member, um, has uh, introduced a bill that has all kinds of conditions on uh, federal contractors, everything from um, uh, staying neutral in union organizing drives. So we don't have this kind of um, flagrant union busting that we're seeing at so many companies to doing things to um, it, it advance racial and gender justice and um, making it, you know,
1: uh,
2: uh, easier for people to kind of move up the ranks. Um, right now, uh, there corporate America celebrating because for the first time in history, we have over 10% of CEOs of fortune 500 companies who are women. <laughs> that means that there's still 90% of them who are men. So we've got a ways to go there, but um, I think it's, it's really a, a moment to think creatively about how to use the power of the public purse. We do have a lot of new money flowing out of uh, the infrastructure bill and The Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS bill, which is about the semiconductors, lots of taxpayer money going to corporations. That is our money, and we should have a much bigger say over how companies use it and, you know, how we as a society use that money to shift corporations in a more equitable direction.
0: And to bring down the ratio, which in 2022, the CEO to worker pay ratio stood at 272 to 1 in the S&P 500 companies. and uh, But another example uh, of efforts to deal with this um, growing inequality and the, this outrage in the sense that uh, these CEOs can write their own ticket with uh, stock buybacks that drive up their own compensation is happening in both San Francisco and Portland, Oregon. I wasn't aware of this, but they, there's a tax in San Francisco called the overpaid executive tax which became effective on january the 1st in 2022 it's already brought in 125 million dollars that's working and i don't see um, fortune 500 companies or any companies fleeing san francisco do you
2: no i and i am so excited about that so this is a tax that passed uh, through a referendum And, um, it has just been in place for a little over a year and is generating more revenue than they were expecting. It's proving to be a more resilient source of revenues than some of their other local taxes. So it's become a really important source of money to pay for teacher salaries and firefighters. And at the same time, making a public statement about, um, how outrageous it is that CEOs are making hundreds, if not thousands, of times more than their workers. And a similar tax is in place in Portland, Oregon. And then in Seattle, um, the city council created a working group to come up with ideas for new revenue sources there. And they're taking a serious look at this tax there. So there's also federal bills to have these kinds of taxes to encourage companies to have narrower gaps between their CEO and worker pay. But um, I think that having it bubble up from the local level could really build momentum towards having um, that at the national level. So it's, it's super exciting and it's great to see that progress.
0: So Sarah, just in the last couple of minutes in, I'm trying to understand though the, I don't, I mean, the justification of pretty hollow, it's just greed. Um, but where did this notion come and develop and metastasize into this belief uh, that somehow ceos have this magical power that requires massive compensation compared to the pe- people that work on the shop floor and actually make the products that the corporation sells how did that come about is it to do with the the business schools because you know, I'm always astounded that in America how there's not this sense that they have in some of the European countries and countries, and of course in uh, Germany, by law the board of directors have to have members of the union sitting on the boards. So you you right. tend to have a more cooperative work environment in Europe, where everybody sort of pitches in, and there's a sense of uh, morale and camaraderie, if you will. But here. It's they teach the CEOs to sort of terrorize their workers and subjugate them and keep them insecure and afraid they're going to lose their job and their health care mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And I've talked to so many people who've told me, that, you know, that they just have to suck it up and put up with so much abuse from these little petty tyrants that they work under. So wh- where did that culture come from?
2: It's a fascinating. Question and uh, you know how the how our culture has developed so differently. Where in this country we we put that guy in the corner office on a pedestal. Some people call it call it like the the great man theory of uh, business management um, with the power centralized in in that office. I think an important part of the picture is you know who's sitting on these corporate boards who are approving of these pay packages and. It is often executives from other companies who want to reinforce this myth of of the great man theory. And like you said, we don't have the same kind of rules as in um, European countries where workers, uh, representatives are sitting on these boards and bringing a different perspective to these conversations. And so they are really living in this. This bubble of, you know, thinking that that they are really the one single-handedly creating the value of these companies, and it's really just a crock. <laughs> and um, I think that you know we should be uh, insisting that this change because this isn't just like a, a company problem or a shareholder problem. The problem of excessive compensation is a problem for all of us. Most obvious uh, example is the 2008 financial crash when executives chasing these huge bonuses drove our economy off a cliff. But we see it in so many other ways as well. We see CEOs chasing bonuses um, by flooding communities with opioids, with um shipping jobs overseas with with, uh, the union busting. It encourages behavior that is not good for um, the bottom line of these companies in the long term, and it's certainly not good for our society.
0: Well, Sarah Anderson, I thank you very much for joining us on this Labor Day.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Anderson, who directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's the lead author of over 20 annual executive excess reports and is the co-editor of inequality.org. Her books include Field Guide to the Global Economy and Alternatives to Economic Globalization. And she just released the 2023 executive excess report available at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're going to take a brief station break. and back looking into whether or not the enormous amounts of money going into the IRA and the CHIPS Act will make their way into the pockets of workers. Well, i got a harmonica job, begun to play, blowing my lungs out for a dollar a day. I blow it inside out and upside down. The man there said he loved my sound. He's raving about it. He loved my sound. dollar a day is worth... after weeks and weeks of hanging around, I finally got a job in New York town, in a bigger place, bigger money too, even joined a union and paid my dues.
1: Now, a very great man once said that some people rob you with a fountain pen. It don't take too long to find out just what he was talking about.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now on this Labor Day is Lee Harris, a staff writer at the American Prospect and the co-founder of New York Focus, an investigative, an investigative news site on New York politics. Her recent articles at the Prospect include Phoenix Cuts, Electricians Pay to, and Sensed in Taiwanese Workers and Biden Administration to Restore Labor Rule Gutted in the 1980s. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lee Harris.
3: Thanks so much for having me on. Excited to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Lee. And there's some questions as to whether or not the enormous amounts of money that are going into the IRA and the CHIPS Act will actually get into the pockets of workers. For example, there's a new battery cell manufacturing plant in Lawstown, Ohio, which is a joint venture between General Motors and LG, and workers there currently start at $16.50 cents per hour And can work their way up to $20 per hour after seven years and that's well below the $32 per hour that union workers make at a nearby GM assembly plant. So this is at the heart from what I understand of the possible UAW strike that could start uh, when the contract expires on September the 14th. So is this what's happening that labor is not necessarily going to be the beneficiary of uh, there's enormous investments coming from the CHIPS Act and from the IRA, even though the Biden White House has promised that it will happen?
3: You know, I actually think it's too soon to announce defeat to that extent. Um, I think like any kind of shift in political economy, which I'm convinced is is what's going on with Bidenomics. I mean, others see it as kind of a continuation of, you know, Clinton era, third way neoliberalism. But I think we're really seeing a major shift in the way that, the state and public investment relate to workers. But I think like any shift, it is fraught and it could fail. So I'd love to, I'm really excited to talk to you about a bunch of examples of of where it's uh, succeeding and and also where it's failing. Um, to your point, yeah, there are, I think they're both really exciting signs about how workers could benefit from the electric vehicle transition and then also really serious and worrisome signs. Um, on one hand, The Department of Energy just agreed to lend $9 billion to Ford to build three new battery plants with no string, batteries for electric vehicles, with no strings attached on labor. That's, you know, taxpayer money going out to projects without ensuring that they create good jobs. And and that was a, a big rallying point for the United Auto Workers, who, as you mentioned, are threatening to strike. So, yeah, I think UAW has every reason to worry that the shift to EVs, is going to be a big hit to unionized car ma- manufacturing which has seen obviously a slow decline over the past couple of decades but on the other hand uh, just to give an example of of a bright spot there have been a bunch of local victories in uh southern right to work states where this kind of work is overwhelmingly going so steel workers at the bluebird electric bus factory in Georgia just voted to to join the united steelworkers union um, and that's very much due to the Biden administration, due to the design, the EPA's design of a rule, um, the Clean School Bus Program, which says that grantees of federal money have to agree to union neutrality, and federal funds can't be used for anti-union activity. And I, just a final point on that is that I think it's it's not an accident that it's school bus manufacturers that won that those higher labor standards, because or it's, it's, the fight is still ahead of us, but but that we've seen progress at least on labor standards for school bus manufacturing because school buses are purchased in bulk by public school districts rather than you know evs which are just bought by individual private consumers so because of those bulk purchasing agreements governments um, sign these big procurement contracts and labor can or exercise a lot more leverage in saying no, these are the the standards we want attached to those contracts. If that makes sense, so so, so unions like the teachers' unions even uh, got involved in fighting for higher standards, even though it doesn't directly impact them. So I guess in some, I think there are interesting examples that point in both directions, both that the um the number of of funds pouring into southern states, states typically hostile to union workers. that's both an organizing opportunity in places where unions have been shunned for decades. And it's also it's also a sign that unions are worried about that they might not be able to capture the benefits of these investments.
0: but in terms of the transition, to electric vehicles. Tesla, for example, I think half of their cars are made in China, and the Chinese Communist government <laughs> bans unions or any even any kind of union activity. And uh, Rivian is now building plants in Georgia, benefiting the political future of Governor Kemp. And also, uh, I think Hyundai is also building plants. So on the one hand, they're moving to these right-to-work states and making these vast investments. But you're suggesting that maybe there's a upside as well.
3: Yeah, there there is an organizing opportunity there. Just so you don't think I'm being too rosy for Labor Day or something, I'm with you. It's, um there are worrisome trends in the EV sector and just add a couple more. You mentioned Rivian. I mean, it's not just in Southern states that they have been, that they've flouted union labor. I wrote a piece about Rivian's uh, plant in Illinois, which has a, a kind of extraordinarily left-wing all-told governor at the moment. And and even in Illinois, which has been sort of out front on labor standards for green jobs, uh, Rivian, an attorney general's investigation found, uh, found, brought in temp workers from Mexico to build this plant and then denied them overtime pay, sent them back, treated them as completely expendable and exploitable workers in the way that we more typically see uh, in southern states like Georgia. And so certainly we shouldn't be naive about Tesla and Rivian and other EV producers being good to workers just because uh they're producing a, a green product and to give another um, example of something that worries me I mean the shift to EVs is quite likely to shed jobs overall versus the um versus ga- you know <laughs> gas powered cars um EVs n- not only because the the cars themselves, Require fewer workers to assemble, but because EVs require less repair and maintenance overall, I mean, think of things like oil change. So there may ultimately be fewer auto service shops, and that's actually a much bigger employer than auto manufacturing itself. Uh, that kind of work will probably shrink. The EVs do need more frequent maintenance on some parts, like tires, which get worn down quickly, but overall the shift to a much um much more recent technology that's more like a computer on wheels <laughs> is not a great sign which is why i think the uaw is fighting so hard for these new battery plants to be folded into their national agreement rather than being non-union shops
0: so let's talk about the new semiconductor plants you've got you've written about the taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company tsmc building a huge plant down in Phoenix, Arizona, again with money from the Chips Act, they're importing workers from Taiwan, are they not? That's right. And how long is that going to go on for? And when, when is the money going to go to American workers, which is what have been promised?
3: Well, to be clear, I think there is money. There is money going to American workers at the moment. So,
0: but let's let start about the the, the construction chips, workers. Because I would say chips you, like EVs are you,
3: another kind of mixed bag um uh-huh. in that just again to start off with the uh, the successes i mean in ohio the ibew electrical workers have won the biggest collective bargaining agreement by a factor of 2 in the union's history for the semiconductor plant that's going up outside of columbus so it's an enormous organizing opportunity but Two of the biggest plants um, are going up in Arizona, state notoriously hostile to unions, and uh, Intel has a plant outside Phoenix, and then TSMC, Taiwanese, the top global producer of chips, which is based in Taiwan, is building a $40 billion facility uh, to produce cutting edge chips. And, And I went and interviewed workers who describe a really pretty dangerous and fraught and chaotic job site there's indications of wage theft and not the sort of thing that American taxpayers would want to be funding with public money. The company has argued that it's been really hard to find workers capable of of building a cutting edge chips plant. And that's how they've made the case to bring 500 or more additional uh, migrant workers to Arizona. They say to train American workers in order to do these kinds of tasks. And understandably, that's generated some pushback from local unions who feel like the company never worked with them to begin with and was not willing to sign a labor agreement to mobilize the kind of labor that would be necessary to train and have on the job site um, and instead just went to their own labor from Taiwan.
0: But there are two tiers in this situation, right? You've got the construction workers that build the actual physical plants. And that's what's happening now in Arizona, as you just uh, told us and you know and this is happening across the board with building highways, building electrical infrastructure, charging stations, battery plants, etc. So you've got the building of the plant and then after that you've got to hire the skilled workers to actually manufacture the product. So but in the first stages that we're talking about which is happening now, the physical building of these massive factories, you have written about the Davis Bacon Act, and in your article at the American Prospect, Amer- Biden administration to restore labor rule gutted in the 1980s. So, tell us about how important key that is.
3: Sure. Yeah, that's a huge and long fought win for building trades unions. So that, through through basically a series of rule changes. It's better known not as Davis-Bacon, but as prevailing wages on uh, public investments. And it could raise what the lowest paid infrastructure workers are paid on projects that receive public funding, ranging from things like those semiconductor fabs, if they're receiving any federal dollars, to highways, bridges, uh, battery plants as they're going up. It, It applies exclusively to the construction unions. And what's really exciting about this rule change is that it looks like it could shrink the wage gap between northern states, many of which have higher worker protections and already have what what's called mini prevailing wage laws in place, and the South, where contractors often bring in a migrant temporary workforce to undercut uh, local wages.
0: So where is it standing now, though? I mean, uh, you, you just told us about the Rivian plant in Illinois, bringing in labor from Mexico, and then stiffing them over their overtime pay. And deporting them right. one, effect.
3: one of the several things that this rule change does is it beefs up enforcement so it's one thing to require prevailing wages it's another to punish employers who flout those rules and for a long time there have been completely trivial punishments for flouting the rules basically you give workers back pay and you walk away um often with with literal little or no penalty so this both tightens the penalties i believe that employers pay and also just gives the Department of Labor more tools to enforce.
0: So there's been criticism of the Biden administration for sending so much of this money into red states, and I'm not sure that that criticism is warranted. Do you think that there is a kind of plan here on the part of Biden to raise living standards in red states so that people will understand the fundamentals of social democracy, where you You know, you pay your taxes and you get your government services and then you're no longer in a kind of feudal trap. It could be.
3: My understanding is that Biden didn't want these investments to flow exclusively to his own existing constituency in blue states, but also the administration has been a little bit blindsided by how overly concentrated the benefits have been in red states and often red states that are not even swing districts. Um, Mm -hmm. Two points here, though. The, The first is just... The other thing I try to keep in mind in covering Bidenomics and how it impacts particular workers is to kind of zoom out to the macroeconomic conditions that he's created. I mean, Biden's fiscal policy from the American Rescue Plan to subsequent tax and job creation bills have run the economy really hot. They've created new jobs and they've lowered unemployment. And so we should we should criticize these targeted investments when they fail to create good jobs But we should also look at how the administration is cumulatively trying to lift all job standards. Um, Biden has said that instead of workers competing for scarce jobs, he wants employers to be competing for scarce workers. And given what the unemployment rate looks like, he's been pretty successful at that. So I think the bigger picture is that public investment in the labor force shows up overall as increasing all workers' leverage. It might not show up for that construction worker in Arizona or Illinois, but you know they sh- show up elsewhere down the street for a, a food service worker, uh, say. Um, on the question of you know what the electoral implications of these big investments in red states, I mean, Brian Kemp has now never met an electric vehicle he didn't like. Republicans uh, by and large have been really happy to em- embrace these investments when they've created jobs in their districts. I'm not um, I'm curious, Ian, what you think. I am torn on the question of whether if Democrats deliver these really good jobs, people will immediately turn around, credit them with that, and vote Democrat. I think uh, change and coalition building takes a lot longer, and there are are pretty strong ideological commitments in many of these parts of the country that make people skeptical about immediately turning around and and sort of, you might say, giving the Biden administration its due. But... That's not a reason not to deliver good things for Americans, which Biden is doing. The other thing is that as with, I mean, Republicans have long complained about entitlements that they get locked in once they're given out. Um, In some ways, I think the investments that are being made now, which are not only investments in jobs, but also in uh, the kind of high-end manufacturing that we want to compete in again uh, in a cleaner economy, those investments are goods even beyond what they mean for democrats at the polls and i think once delivered they'll they'll be very hard to walk back even by fiscal conservatives who might like to cut those programs i think the programs may be popular even if democrats aren't given full credit for delivering them but what do you think
0: well i'm sort of interested in how do you change the mentality of so many people in the country and recently Marjorie Taylor Greene made this absurd speech condemning the great society under LBJ and Social Security and Medicare and how terrible all these things are. And it's just mind-boggling that we live in a society where, you know, a high percentage of our citizens think that there's something wrong with getting services when you pay your taxes and getting Social Security and getting health care and getting childcare and pregnancy leave and all of those things that uh, European countries take for granted as though something's terrible about it. And, and you know, you've know, you got the two democratic traitors, Manchin and Sinema, particularly in Manchin's case, killing the child tax credit, which was one of the most progressive things that ever happened to children in this country, particularly to children that were going to bed and going to school hungry. So I'm just wondering in terms of whether it's going to change the mentality, which to begin with is so perverse that people are against a government that makes life better for them.
3: I wouldn't, uh, I I, I guess I I disagree with that. I mean, I'm not interested in condemning uh, the mentality. I would say something more like the opinions. Which Well, I'm I'm
0: not condemning it. I'm I'm thinking about changing
3: it. Sure. One way to change people's opinion, though, is to talk to them and, and take their concerns seriously.
0: Right. But this exercise in making life better for people in red states, for example, is it, is it going to have that effect to...
3: Well, we'll to- see if the jobs make life better for people in red states. I think it's um, part of what I've been trying to say is that it's quite hard to create jobs with high standards attached to them in the highly targeted way that we're attempting. I think what the administration is doing is quite ambitious, Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's likely to be a mixed bag. Many of these jobs may succeed um, on, on most of the metrics they're attempting to hit. Um, others may fail. That's part of what it means to have industrial policy, a, a word that used to be a kind of dirty word and, and is, has come back into vogue. Industrial policy, when it's successful, involves experimentation and sometimes failure. And when the state tries to do really hard things and compete with the private sector, there's no guarantee that it pulls it off in every case and so i think i think i admire the administration to the extent that it's trying to to set really high standards for these jobs i think it ought to be criticized where it isn't and i think we shouldn't we shouldn't lecture folks in red states in advance about not being grateful enough about a program that is only just being stood up we should see what it delivers for them
0: well lee harris i thank you so much for joining us here today on this labor day
3: Thank you so much, Ian. Happy Labor Day.
0: You too. And again, I've been speaking with Lee Harris, who's a staff writer at The American Prospect and the co-founder of New York Focus, an investigative news site on New York politics. Her recent articles at The American Prospect include Phoenix cuts electrician pay and sends in Taiwanese workers and "Biden Administration to restore labor rule gutted in the 1980s. and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 took the kids to the park and disappeared.